Welcome to this special edition of Our Plant Stories. We've got loads of plant stories, but not just from this podcast, but from three other podcasts too. Whenever you read about garden wildlife, do you ever, ever see a spider mentioned? No. And he just talked so warmly about trees. And I don't mind if I'm talking about composting human poo, and I don't mind if I'm talking about bees, and I don't mind if I'm talking about witches, like anything goes, as long as it relates in some way to gardening or to being outdoors. In a former life, working as a BBC radio producer, I sometimes got to produce the Radio 4 Pick of the Week programme, highlights from the week's broadcasting. And if you were really lucky, you got to produce Pick of the Year. So I thought, why not do it here? I contacted three other plant podcast presenters and asked if they fancied being a part of it. And they all said yes. Though one did tell me it was a bit like being asked to pick her favourite child. So whether you're spending time in the kitchen or out in the garden planting the last few bulbs or driving around as we all do at this time of year, I hope you will enjoy this episode and have some new podcasts to check out too. I thought I'd begin with one of the stories that set me off on my podcast journey. And I love it when a bit of detective work is needed, as in the case of Lynn McAdams' plant story. I do remember uh, my mum's flower bed down the right-hand side of the back garden. And I remember an absolutely beautiful scarlet peony that she absolutely adored and she used to look after. And the, the flower heads were about... In my head, they were about 18 inches wide, the flower heads, and they were absolutely gorgeous, but she, we were never allowed to go near them and we're never allowed to touch them or bring them in or anything like that. And peonies went out of fashion for a long time, but funny enough, they're in now, and I'm desperate to find that peony that she had. It was scarlet, that's all I know, it was bright pink. So how do you find out the name of that peony? Well, you send the clip to Claire Austin, author of a book called Peonies. It is the most commonly found peony in gardens. It's one of the oldest ones in gardens. So it's um, peony officinalis rubra plena. The big double red one with shiny red petals that tend to go a bit pink with the age. They also, probably the reason why your mother said don't touch them is because the petals will fall yeah. off easily once they get to a certain age. Yeah. They just sort of like just shed like confetti so yeah that, that's why it's just so commonly found and I remember at Chelsea people say I've got this peony in my garden what is it and my grandmother's garden was a common one as well is it one of the oldest kinds then yeah it's one of the original ones grown in gardens it would have come from the far side of Europe decades and they don't really know where it grew originally and it doesn't grow wild anymore but it's easily transportable as well that's the whole thing with peonies they're easy they'll last for months and months and months out of the soil and also when um, you've got them in the soil you dig it up and you move it somewhere else there will be a little bit of tuberous root left and it will grow again so every garden had them and my memory was that it was a very big flower it was also a very big bud now, is that because I was a lot smaller and looking up at it, or is it really a really big well, flower? Yeah, it will be at least six inches across, even a bit bigger, probably. The buds are very round, and I, as a child, used to love them because they had ants on them. The ants go for the secretion, which is a sugar secretion, and nobody really knows why ants do it, but some people have said it actually assists the bud to open. 
so the ants will clear the secretion and it will then burst open. And am I also right in thinking, this is great to have you there to sort of confirm all these memories of of quite a few years ago, but am I right in thinking also that it would close when it was darker, that it, that it would close at Yeah, time? peonies do. Yes, they generally, you particularly notice it with single peonies because they're close to protect the stamens at night. And then once the plant has got to a certain age or the flower's got to a certain age, then it will just, the petals will fall off. But yes, they do close up, not tightly, but they draw up. So uh, You can understand how much that would impact on a young child as well. What are these <laughs> beings doing? You know, <laughs> They're not just plants, they're actual beings. I've noticed as I've recorded the podcast that people often have very early memories of plants, perhaps linked to a parent or a grandparent. But in the case of my first podcast guest, her love of houseplants can be tracked to primary school and being given the very responsible task of watering the spider plants in the school library. Check out episode 13 of our plant stories. Jane Perone presents and produces On the Ledge, which she describes as all things indoor gardening. Because the show's been going for nearly seven years, this is quite a broad church. I occasionally go a little bit off topic, but basically anything that lives as a plant in a pot or some kind of container in your house or home, that's fair game for On The Ledge. So I could probably look at any of my house plants and go, oh, there'll be an episode about insert name of plant. Indeed, yeah. I've covered a lot of ground in the time. Sometimes I'll just do solo episodes where it's just me talking about a plant, but often I'll be interviewing experts in a particular uh, type of plant. And sometimes we'll take a wander around my house looking at plants. Uh, Sometimes we'll go out uh, in the field to, to look at other people's plants, but we always manage to have lots of fun. I'm saying in the field obviously means in other people's houses. Yeah, I mean, I say in the field. I mean, making okay, it so sound you're the kind like of person a... who wanders into other people's houses and basically yeah. they, your eyes are drawn to their houseplants. Yeah, I will be doing that. I will be judging your houseplants if I ever come to your house and probably like, you know, getting out a hand lens and looking and checking for pests and informing you what I've found. It's, I am that kind of annoying house guest. <laughs> I love that thought. Right, I should be just rearranging my houseplants if you ever come to my house. Um, So why have you chosen this clip? Well, what I love about podcasting is the fact that you're able to cover stuff that just isn't talked about elsewhere in the horticultural media world. So the subject of houseplants and spiders may seem a little obscure, but when you think about it, we've all got houseplants and spiders living together And we know nothing about them. We don't really know what the spiders in our house are up to, who they are, how they're coexisting with our houseplants. And I was delighted to be able to go and visit my guest, uh, T of T's Jungle, to find out more about spiders because she is a real expert. So it just felt like a topic that needed covering. If somebody spots spiders around their houseplants, do they need, is there anything they need to worry about? There's no risk of any spiders causing problems to pl- house plants, are there? No. So spiders themselves are absolutely no risk to your plants whatsoever. Um, generally, if you're finding spiders around your plants in abundance, it's because they've got a food source. 
if they've got a food source, you might want to start looking at your pest situation. <laughs> so they can actually be a really good indicator for a pest activity that you might not otherwise have noticed. Spiders are not going to stick around anywhere for long if they can't get food. So um, depending on what kind of spiders they are, how big they are, um, whereabouts you're seeing them on the plant, that can sometimes be a decent indicator of what sort of food they're finding. If they're larger, they're not going to be bothering with tiny pests like spider mites or thrips. Um, so you might have aphids or mealybugs or something that they're that they're finding instead. Um, if they're tiny little things and they're living around the soil level, then it might be just that they're finding springtails in your soil, which again, they're beneficial, they're nothing to worry about. But the point I'm making with this is they're an indication of the entire ecosystem that exists in houseplant pots and around the plants themselves, um, which I think is something to be encouraged. Um, and having life in your soil is an amazing thing. Having life around your plants can be a good thing. Obviously, we don't want our plants covered in pests, but there are other animals that will live on and around our plants that are an indicator of good plant health. So do, oh, this is a very basic question, but do all spiders spin silk? Or are there some that don't, they, they, do they all do it or do they do it for different purposes? Yes, so all spiders have the capability to spin silk. Um, different types of spiders can spin different kinds of silk. Uh, that's something I could talk about for hours, so I won't go into too much <laughs> detail, but um, they use it in different ways. So different types of spiders will spin different types of webs. Some spiders won't spin webs at all unless they're creating an egg sac or a retreat that they will rest in. Um, they're things like jumping spiders and wolf spiders, which we tend to see outside more than we do indoors. They're... Um, what we call active hunters. So rather than relying on silk to ensnare their prey or clue them into the presence of prey, they actually go out looking. They've got better eyesight than a lot of other types of spiders, so they will look for their prey and they will actually hunt it down. Um, but in terms of indoors, the kind of spiders that we're used to seeing in our houses, um, not just on houseplants, but just in general, people will be very familiar with the very long-legged spindly ones that you'll see up in the corners of rooms. Those are cellar spiders, sometimes always, sometimes also called cobweb spiders, because they'll spin a kind of web that just gets full of dust and starts mm. looking really shabby after a while. Um, they mostly use that to sense vibrations. So if anything walks through that mass of strands, they'll know it's there and they'll go after it. Um, house spiders as well. You'll see the males running around on your floor. Massive males running around on your floor in late yes, summer. Yes, that's right. Why are they? What are they doing in late summer? Why are they going? That is the time of year that the males have matured. And when the males oh, have matured, right. they're on the search for ladies because they know they've only got a little while left before they die. Mm -hmm. So if you see a big male house spider running around in your house, try and take pity on the poor bloke because he <laughs> hasn't got long left. He's desperately oh. trying to find a lady friend. I love hearing someone who is passionate about their subject, be that spiders or spider plants. I'll be putting all the details of these wonderful podcasts on the website, ourplantstories.com, for your onward listening journey. It's a real privilege when you're making these podcasts to tap into other people's vast knowledge. Spiders may not be a problem, but snails and slugs? Well, that's a different matter. Anyone who has grown hostas the plant story in episode 7, will I think be familiar with the visit to the garden after dark to round up a few of these pests before they devour your entire plant. Vicky Meads of New Forest Hostas is an award-winning grower and of course has thousands of hostas. You can always have your sacrificial lamb. I have them. Mm. So, Sorry, explain more. Sacrificial lamb. So there's some hostas that are really, really yummy. 
compared to others. And you can have them with other plants as well. Like, <clears throat> So what's um, a yummy hosta? So a yummy hosta, something with a very thin, thin, an Oreo marginata normally, something with a very thin leaf. Uh, basically, anything will go towards that. So when I go out hunting, I will hot, hunt for slugs, snails, vine weevil, everything. And I will go to them plants first to see. and they can smell them they can taste them they find them and i will pick everything off of that uh it works a treat i mean sometimes you plant strawberries and i hate to say even hookahs and things around um that, that they all can attract different pests and even if you have a lovely collection don't put your sacrificial lamb amongst it put it away from it so you're not calling that most that's the most delicious thing there. You're not calling them into that. You will put that in the opposite corner and they will go there. It's the same when people use things like slug pellets. I mean, uh, they don't work anywhere near like they used to because the, the methaldehyde ones are now banned. Um, so, uh, but people would cast them just generally around the garden and in handfuls and they put too much and then they wouldn't work anyway. Uh, less is more when it comes to things like that and don't actually I wouldn't actually put them under the plant um, but uh, I would put them away from it so they will you're calling them away from the plant and that's where they will go and eat. You'll find more of Vicky's wonderful advice on the episode 7 page on the website. My next guest, M.T. O'Donnell, is the podcaster who told me asking for a clip for this episode was like being asked to pick a favourite child. Well, my podcast is called The Scotland Grows Show and it's a podcast to accompany The Scotland Grows magazine and both platforms really just celebrate everything that is good in Scottish gardening. So I join gardeners around Scotland to find out what's growing well, where they are, and obviously, through the course of the podcast, we pick up tips and stories along the way. So it's just lovely. What made you start it? It had been on my to-do list for a long time, as these things are. And the magazine was doing well, but sometimes with magazine articles, you're bound by you know how long a feature can be. And I always felt that there was sometimes a lot more behind the stories of some of the people we featured or some of the gardens that we featured so the podcast is a lovely way of being able to expand on some of the stories in the magazine, but also to maybe interview people who we haven't featured in the magazine, just to find out a wee bit more about their garden, their favourite plants or their jobs in horticulture, which may be very inspiring for other people looking to get into the profession. So tell me about this clip. Tell me why you've chosen this one and who it is. It was so hard to choose a favourite clip because there are probably favourite bits from each episode across the whole year so far. But the reason I chose this clip from um, Simon Jones, who works for the National Trust for Scotland. Simon is a garden and landscapes manager, so he has overview of a geographical area in Scotland where National Trust gardens are. And he just talked so warmly about trees. Now, we can all talk about trees, but Simon just talked about those difficult decisions that as gardens managers, they have to make about when to fell trees or when a tree has been hit by a storm or has been hit by a pathogen. 
and when they have to make those difficult decisions. We're, we're emotionally attached to our landscapes, you know, as much as we, we try not to be, especially as a, as a gardens manager, you've got to be quite removed from um, being too emotional about it. But we all love trees. They're so emotive. Um, you, you know, you've seen them grow, you've seen them change shapes, you've seen them get loads of infections and problems wrong with them, structural issues. And all of a sudden, you know, they get split in half by a storm. And, and it's just, it's utterly devastating, actually, because you begin to know them. It sounds a little bit strange, but you begin to know them a little bit personally, if that makes sense, because yeah. you, you, you've worked on them and worked with them for so long. So I think I think that's the problems. When I spoke to Chris this morning, that's he just went, "Oh, mate, you never guess what's happened to this big beech tree," and you know, and that's what happens. It's it's you've just got to roll with it. I'm afraid. And you are in that unenviable position of having to make those really difficult decisions to fail trees, or even you know, recently with like sudden oak death kind of you, you've got to make those difficult decisions absolutely you know and, and the the thing is you get a little bit hardened to it in a way and you know you, you suddenly realize oh just chop it down don't worry about it you know it'll, it'll be fine we'll, we'll crack on and we'll get going and and you know and that's just what you've got to say operationally to, to get the job done but you know in the back of your mind you're thinking okay that's been there since that garden was built you know i think you're referencing sudden oak death which is one of the gardens that I work with is Arduni, just south of Oban, and and that's had its lion's share of, of sudden oak death. We've had a lot of trees felled in that location, and that actually took the heart out of that particular garden. And you, you kind of look at these trees before they come down, and and there's there's it, it's quite emotional. Then the trees come down, and then you realise that it's just created this amazing opportunity. And you have to say that to the, the head gardener in particular, and because they're there every day. You know, I visit the gardens. You know maybe once or twice a month throughout the year but they're there every day seeing what's happening they see how tr trees respond they see how plants respond to where they live all these different things they're caring for them cultivating the soil and then the trees come down and you're saying to them look don't worry nobody has planted up this landscape in 120 years and you're going to be the person that gets to do it and so you know you've got to really think about you know positive ways to to spin a fairly negative situation because at the end of the day we're in the business of keeping trees up not chopping them down so it's a huge decision for us at any time regardless of whether it's a storm event uh, an infection by a pathogen that's come in it doesn't matter it's it's a difficult thing for us to do to to chop a tree down there have been several tree stories in the first series of our plant stories willow yew magnolia and a very fetching apple tree called the peas goods nonsuch Right back at the beginning of our plant stories, I came across Mary Maniti, who said if she was to wander around New York, she would be able to spot the Italian gardens because of a very special tree, the fig tree. She has been all over America, gathering the stories of these trees brought over originally by Italian immigrants. Almost all of these older trees came from Italy, came with them, either tucked in, you know, a little cutting, tucked in one of their few belongings, you know, one trunk or something, or often, you know, I hear stories uh, about them cutting being sewn into the lining of a coat because they weren't quite sure when they got here, if it was going to be okay to bring these trees, even before there were any regulations I'm talking about, you know, prior to 1960s, they brought them very sort of secretively. I have a great uh, oral history of a woman who was 102 at that time uh, when I did the interview. Unfortunately, she's since passed, but she 
talked about her mother in like 1928 when they came on the old steamer, you know, steam liners. This woman was a very young child, but she remembers her mother having sewn it into the hem of her skirt, a cutting. They got on the boat and she took it out of the hem of her skirt, put it in a little bit of water near a little window for the passage. And then when it was time to disembark from the boat, sewed it back into the lining of her skirt just to make sure it wasn't detected and taken from her uh, so that she could plant it. And fortunately, the the woman, uh, the 102-year-old woman still had that tree that was grown by her mother and has shared it with my project as part of our legacy uh, fig collection. You can hear more about Mary's project and how to grow a fig tree cutting in episode two. I started my podcast as a way of combining two loves, audio and plants, and because I love stories and the way that they can teach us. I'm also interested in why others start their podcasts. Sarah Wilson began Roots and All back in 2018. I started it because I kept listening to podcasts. I was an avid podcast listener and I used to listen to Gardener's Question Time and um, a lot of stuff from the States, actually, because there weren't so many UK gardening podcasts when I first started listening. And so I was gardening and then I had these people in my ears talking about gardening and I was studying gardening at the time and I was just absolutely obsessed with gardening, anything to do with it. And I thought there was a lot of really good stuff coming out of the States. It was kind of very sensitive to... Um, you know, the environment and sustainability, but the stuff that was coming out of the UK, so like I said, Gardener's Question Time, um, my local gardening, local gardening radio, phoning, they were kind of, people were phoning in and saying, I've got a problem with my roses, and they would go, yeah, what what you want to do is spray it, and I'd be like, no, don't spray everything, stop doing this, and I just felt that the information that was going out to the public about gardening was just not the full picture. There was so much more that could have been said. There were many alternative ways that weren't being given coverage. And so I basically wanted to do better on that front. I wanted to give a voice to people who did have an alternative point of view and weren't part of the traditional gardening media establishment. So that was was solely the reason behind it. So if someone asked you to describe your podcast, what would you say? Oh, I would say... Uh, you never know what you're going to get because as it's gone on, I've kind of just gone completely bonkers. I'm like, oh, I'm going to have a bit from over here and a bit from over there. And I don't mind if I'm talking about compost in human poo. And I don't mind if I'm talking about bees. And I don't mind if I'm talking about witches. Like anything goes, as long as it relates in some way to gardening or to being outdoors. Um, yeah, it's fair game. So it's like this weird, It's like I'm like a kid chasing a butterfly. I never know quite what's going to happen next week. So, yeah, yeah, you can't pin it down, I'm afraid. But the one theme, I suppose, that does underpin it is the kind of theme of wildlife and nature and sustainability and and kind of gardening lightly with, you know, on the land and and almost, I think, a spiritual aspect as well to gardening. So tell me why you chose this clip. It's hard to choose one clip, isn't it? I know that. Yes, it is very hard. And I kind of didn't choose the clip so much as what Paul says in the clip as... I chose the book that he wrote, really. Um, and so who's Paul? This, so Paul is Paul Sterry. He's an entomologist. He's very, written lots and lots of very well-respected books, and he's written a book called The Biodiversity Gardener. 
and I saw this book, got it, and I read it, and I thought, this is exactly the book that everybody's been crying out for. It's a, it's where somebody with a background in entomology actually is also a gardener, and they're writing about where those two things collide. And it's an absolute wealth of information on a practical level that we've not really seen before in any gardening books. And I suppose I've always tried to get people on the podcast who are very science-based science and come from different disciplines, because I think it's really important to do that in order to feed into gardening, because gardeners know what gardeners know, and there's limitations. We can't know everything, so we need to kind of start collaborating with other people. And Paul seemed to be that rare beast where he was bringing two, two sort of strands together and weaving them in and so it was a brilliant book and I was really really delighted to land him as guest. Nature is the gardener but I'm the overseer, the guardian angel that decides which bits shall remain meadow and which bits are destined for scrub and which bits will become woodland margins as it were. I think people can find it quite daunting to take that hands-off yes. approach. And uh, I loved your book from the second I opened it, honestly, and it really struck a chord. And I liked what you said about, you know, how to get started. And one of your things was to cancel your gardening magazine subscriptions, which I found funny. <laughs> Slightly tongue-in-cheek, but uh, I don't can want imagine. to offend anybody, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> but, you know, if people do want to start, you know, if they're looking to transition away from conventional gardening to wildlife gardening, what would you recommend they do? The starting point, I guess, is to look at your local landscape and see what the good natural habitats are. If you've got wonderful meadows, you know, within a five, 10 mile radius of you, and you've got a similar soil type, and you feel that those meadows are probably beleaguered and under threat, then it's probably meadows that I would concentrate on. If you're fortunate enough to live, for example, on um, sandy soil that historically might have been heathland, your ambition might be to turn a significant part of your garden into heathland habitat. So you would grow appropriate species or encourage appropriate species. So heather, cross-leaved heath, bell heather, depending on whether your underlying soil was wet or dry. And if you lived on an area that was chalk and had formerly been chalk downland, your ambitions might be to restore chalk downland flora, which would be entirely different from the clay neutral soils where I live. So I think meadows are always the central joy of any garden, I, I feel, but frame the garden, whatever the garden is, with hedgerows. And again, all you have to do if you really want advice is to look at your local hedgerows. You can look at historical records such as um, enclosure maps, which will be available in, in your local archives, your county archives. That will give you an idea of where relatively old, two centuries old hedgerows can be found. And you can, you can do your own survey work, identify the species that are in there, and use that as a planting plan, not only in terms of species, but proportion for the margins of your garden. Paul Sterry author of The Biodiversity Gardener. My thanks to all my guests today. I will put the links for everything you've heard on ourplantstories.com. If you do buy a book or visit a garden because you've heard someone on a podcast, do you think about dropping the author or gardener an email or a message on Instagram to say you heard them on Roots and All or Scotland Grows or On the Ledge or Our Plant Stories? And if you like a podcast, well, I can promise you the presenters will love to know that too and supporting them.
whether it be by buying a coffee or GoFundMe or Patreon or a subscription, will help them to keep doing what they do, which is connecting people with a passion for plants. Our Plant Stories will begin Series 2 in January and we'll begin with a beautiful story that will take us to the Lake District and a lost garden. I wish you all peaceful holidays and maybe the odd plant book or implement in your stocking. Our Plant Stories is presented and produced by me, Sally Flatman. Thank you.